There we go. Am I a bit live? As long as you can hear me. You're live on Channel 4. Please do not swear. If you want to turn to uh, the book of Haggai, if you can, who can remember where it is? Rachel can remember where it is. It's the third, sort of, Graham can remember where it is. It's the third to last in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets, so-called, not because it's less important, because it's one of the smaller prophetic books in the Old Testament. It's the third to last. You've got Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then that one blank piece of paper, which represents 400 years, and then the New Testament. Haggai. Okay, we've stepped into a new year. As you can probably tell, things will start running smoothly about March time, don't worry. We'll get back into the swing of things. We've had Christmas, haven't we? We've had a bit of time off. We have stepped into a new year, and as always, it's good, it's good healthy practice. Many people do um, goals, New Year's resolutions, things like that. It's just a helpful, it's just a date, but it's a helpful moment to remember to just to press pause, to reflect, to review as humans, but actually also as the church, to run a health check to run an MOT where are our hearts at and is there anything we need to be doing differently have we just got caught in a cycle of life that actually isn't fruitful is there anything we need to change and obviously stepping into new year stepping into 2020 we want to put our best foot forward as a church don't we and so we've um, started last week we spent three Sundays working through this small book of Haggai it's only two chapters 38 verses we're going to work through it over these three Sundays and last week we saw just in the first 11 verses we asked the question whose house we're going to ask a different question each week we asked the question whose house just to remind you of the story Solomon had built this great magnificent temple 500 or so years earlier it was a magnificent centre of worship for God's people to glorify God through and uh, 50 years before this, this book, this, this incident occurs, uh, 66 years beforehand, in fact, um, an evil king had come in, had, had completely decimated the temple, completely brought it to ruins, and removed a large chunk of the people and taken them away as exiles to his land a thousand, year, uh, a thousand miles away. Um, and the whole people, the nation, the temple, everything was devastated. But 50 years later, 16 years prior to this, Another king was on the throne, and he decreed uh, that all the people could return and actually start, he ordered them to start rebuilding their temple. They started building the foundations, but as they shouted with joy and, and wept, the old men wept, the younger men shouted with joy. As this great cry rose out, the enemies around them stirred, and opposition came, and the work stopped. And basically, only the foundations were what had been done. Sixteen years on, God turns up, speaks to them through the prophet Haggai and says to them, guys, what's going on? My house is in ruins and you're living in your beautiful panelled houses. And as we saw, if you read under the text, actually they've been using the wood that was set aside for the temple they were using for their own houses. God pointed out the people's blind spots, their priorities, their hearts were completely wonky. They were putting all their efforts into their comfortable lives but not glorifying God through rebuilding his temple and as we saw that speaks to us as well about we can have upside down priorities and we can actually be blind to them as well we're living our easy comfortable lives we can be giving lip service to partnering with him to transforming our communities to making disciples playing our part and making his 
church uh, glorious and beautiful. We can pay lip service to that and do some of the stuff, but we still have to ask the question, what's my priority? Is my priority God's house? Or is it actually my house? The thing is, while that can be challenging to hear, it can be disheartening, in fact, if it just remains in a place of finger-pointing and guilt trips, can't it? But that's not what God's heart is at all. We discover, particularly in these next coming verses, that God is far too kind to leave them there, and he's far too kind to leave us there as well. So we're going to ask a different question today. Last week was whose house. This week we're going to ask whose eyes. Because when it does come to being obedient, hearing from God and responding to that in obedience, but recentering our priorities around God's priorities, what helps is to address this issue of whose eyes are we looking at the situation through. Are we looking through his eyes or just our eyes, physical eyes or spiritual eyes? So we're going to look at Two messages. There's five messages in the book of Haggai. We looked at one last week and look at two this week and then the final two next week. These two are just rich, dripping with pure encouragement, actually. Next week's they're just dripping with explicit gospel. It's amazing. This week they're just dripping with encouragement. Firstly, we're going to see God's kindness at work and actually providing the solution to the problem in the first place. As he asks them to step out and as they're obedient, we discover actually he's underneath or the ability for them to do so in the first place. We're going to be looking for the supply. We're going to read it in two sections. And then after we've looked at that, we're going to read uh, the first nine verses of chapter 2. We're going to see further encouragement from God to look beyond how things immediately appear. We're going to ask a question about looking beneath the surface. So, first of all, let's read from uh, verse 12 to the end of chapter 1. Remember, the people have been pointed out there, wonky priorities, and then this happens. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, he's the governor, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Praise the Lord! And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Brilliant. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let me just pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is kind enough to not just point out our problems but provide the solution in the first place. We thank you that you are truly a father in every respect, not one who just demands respect and reverence, but one who upholds us, who stirs us, who leads us on, who encourages us, who wants the best for us. Lord, we thank you. May you continue to speak to us through the remainder of this morning. Help us to worship you with open ears and open hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, first of all, we just need to note what's happening here. Firstly, God had spoken. He'd spoken to the people. He'd shown them their hypocrisy, their complacency, their comfortable lives, which are actually achieving nothing, really. And he's asked to them what is necessary to be bringing him glory and to achieve actual change. Thankfully, we just read, the people do exactly that. They acknowledge this kick up the bum that they needed, 
and in fact, they do something about it. Now, we need to remember, they still had good reason not to build the temple. They still have their enemies around them. The enemies haven't gone away. They still have every reason to fear. They still have reason to not step forward, even though they've been pinched in their hearts about complacency and about comfort. They still have good reason to think twice about it, but they don't. They just get on with it. They actually do acts out of obedience and reverence. That is an act of faith on their behalf. There's a uh, there's a lovely British preacher from a hundred years ago called Geoffrey Studdett Kennedy. He uh, he also became famous for um, giving cigarettes along with spiritual aid to dying and injured soldiers in the First World War. Probably not the best medical advice today, uh, but we let him off. It was a hundred years ago. He became known as Woodbine Willie as a result. It's brilliant. His real name's Geoffrey. He says this about faith. He says, faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. Let me read that again. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of, confidence, uh, in spite of consequence. Faith is not leaping blindly. Sometimes it can be misinterpreted as that. Faith is not le- leaping blindly. It's stepping forward in spite of fear in spite of opposition, in spite of any questions we may still have, faith is trust. Faith is trust. And these people are finally doing what's been asked of them. They're no longer questioning. They're no longer procrastinating. They're no longer lost in their comfortable lives. They're just doing it and letting God work out the rest. That's an act of faith. But then what does God do? Well, there's two things. He comes through with what they've needed all along for it to even be possible. He does two things. In word and in action. He says something and he does something. First of all, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. God says this again in the early part of chapter 2. We'll look at that in a few minutes. He says that again. It's one thing to be told what you need to do and that you need to man up and be strong and just get on with it. It's one thing to be told that. It's another thing when the person with the big ask says that they're coming with you. It's very different, isn't it? Jesus says the same to the disciples and to us at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end. You are not alone in this. We need to remember that if all is stripped away, if all you have is God by your side, then you have everything you need. He is our provider, he is our guardian, he is our comforter, he is our guide, he is our champion, he is our victor. If 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 that's all you have, you shouldn't want or need any more. This is God we're talking about. And he says, do you know what? If you're mine, I am with you and I'm never, ever leaving you. That's what God says to the people here. But there's more. There's more. He proves it. Because in verse 14, it carries on. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord. God himself stirs up the leaders. He stirs up the people. He stirs their spirits to press on and press in. He gives them the wherewithal to power through In the first place, this isn't a self-help thing. Go on, off you go. Okay, I must muster up the strength to do this. Actually, as you step out, you discover God is giving you the energy and the wherewithal to do it. 
whenever we step out in obedience, regardless of the consequences, despite whatever gravitational pull there may be on our hearts to just retreat back to our comfortable lives, that's always, that's always going to be there, isn't it? But it's there <coughs> that we discover that God has got our backs all along. He's not expecting us to do it in our own steam. Time and time again, God is simply waiting for us to step out in faith whenever he calls. And time and time again, he catches us. I remember when, um, when, I, when we as a church and, and me and Jenny were sensing it was time for me to start working for the church. I was working the ambulance service full time. I was a paramedic. And there was a time when, okay, we need to do half and half. I need to be available for the church half the week and then work a couple of extra shifts for the ambulance service. That was fine because it meant I always had a backup plan. Because if it didn't work out for whatever reason, I could just up my hours at the ambulance service again and still have a decent job with a decent wage, a very good pension plan. And paramedics aren't the kind of thing people make redundant. Unless I did something stupid, I still had a job for life. So working part-time for the ambulance service, I still had a backup plan. Then we sensed that God was asking me to, do, to work for the church full-time. Suddenly, that was a whole other ballgame. Because I was stepping away from that place of security into a place of, I mean, you, you guys are brilliant, but it's charitable giving. And it's a whole other place, isn't it? And as we sensed God was saying this, we as a church, we, we thought, okay, we're going to take up an offering one Sunday. And if we hit a certain target for six months, an extra six months salary to cover the other half of next year, for example. If that comes through, we're going <coughs> to, it's like laying out a fleece. Then we sense God is definitely asking us to do this. And we got above and beyond that figure, didn't we? And then Jenny and I, with tears in our eyes, we actually said to each other, we've really got to do this, haven't we? And as much as I'm looking forward to working with the church, I'm stepping away from a place of security. But while I still had a plan C in my head, that actually I could work a day a month, a shift a month, for the ambulance service on bank to keep my registration up and a bit of extra money for you know, treats and DIY and all that kind of stuff. I, re I even wrote the letter to when my letter of resignation included that request. Can you keep me for one bank shift a month? Keep my certificate up. The moment I turned that off, I really felt a pinch in my heart that God was saying, burn your bridges. I want you to cut this tie and trust me. And so I, I spoke to them again and just said, I'm, I'm done. I'm deregistering as a paramedic. There's no going back now. I'd have to go through a whole degree course and then more on half wage. And it's just impossible. It never happened. I just had to trust God. Yet over five years later, here we are. He's caught us. He's stirred me to, and to step into it. He's stirred Jenny to step into it. He's stirred you guys to keep contributing. We're here five years later and we're still going strong. God caught us. There's a place where as we step out in obedience, we discover that God will always catch us. He's not asking us to do it in our own strength. He always gives us the wherewithal. Maybe, maybe last week, <coughs> as we were asking these questions about where's my priorities and what's God calling me to do, maybe you're sensing God asking you to do something. But there's, <coughs> there's good reason. There's fear that's holding you back. You've still got questions. You still... There's still uncertainty. Maybe you're still sensing, yeah, but this is, where I'm right now is pretty comfortable. Maybe you're just sensing God calling you to do something. Just know, just know, just know. As you step out in obedience, he will catch you every single time. And there's plenty of people here who can put their hands up and tell lots of stories. He catches, heads are nodding already. He will catch you.
So that's the first of these two messages of encouragement. But however, there's still another blip in the people's hearts that God needs to address. Because even when we are doing the right thing, we've stepped out and God's caught us and we're doing it. After a while, once we're doing it, we can still end up losing heart, can't we? We can lose motivation. We don't see the amount of change we were hoping for straight away. We want it all to happen overnight. And that excited early wind can drop from our sails, can't it? Simply because we don't see the results we're immediately hoping for. Our expectations can feed our disappointments. The reason for that is because we're only looking at the surface. What God constantly wants us to do is to keep looking beneath the surface and understand what he's doing behind the scenes. Because we need to see what happens a few weeks later. This is why the dates are in here. It talks about the 24th day of such and such month. It says here at the beginning of chapter 2, in the seventh month on the 21st day. This is now nearly four weeks later. Okay, So almost a month in after the people have stepped out, God then needs to say this to the people. So on the seventh month, the 21st day of the month, now these are Hebrew calendars. This is now mid to late October in our money, so to speak. It's autumn time. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. There he goes again. Declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The people here have been losing heart because what they've been hoping for doesn't match up with what they're seeing. Well, and what they're seeing doesn't match up with what they've been hoping for. There's a reason these dates are in here. It's very significant. The date given here is actually the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that feast was about celebration, it's about thanking God for this harvest we've just had. And it's also thanking God for when they remember Israel. He even mentions it when I brought you out of Egypt. It's when they remember what God did for them as they wandered in the wilderness. The Feast of Tabernacles is celebrating what God has done. And so here they are at the finale of this great feast of celebration. But it's also significant. This is the same feast during which 500 years earlier, King Solomon had dedicated his magnificent temple. So suddenly, all of this for the past few weeks has been going around these people's heads. In this grand finale of pointed celebration, they're looking at this second temple they're building, and they're just seeing it as a shadow of its former version. And this, what, what, what are we doing? This is never going to match up to what God has done in the past. They're relying on memories of yesteryear. They're looking at this temple, and they're being reminded of what it physically isn't. 
They're dwelling on the glory days, aren't they? And God's telling them, you guys, you are looking with the wrong eyes. You need to look beneath the surface of what I'm actually doing. And the trouble is, we in the UK, as a church in, in our country, we can, we can be in danger of doing the same. Because there's um, Tim Keller. He's a, uh, an American pastor and author. Brilliant man. He's observed that Christianity in different situations, different places, Christianity will always go through seasons in relation to the culture. Spring, summer, autumn, winter. And you can see that in different, in, in each of those seasons being um, demonstrated around the world. For example, um, spring, if the church is going through a season of spring, it's when the church is embattled but it's growing. There's new growth coming through. There's excitement of change and things are turning around. They're still embattlement but things are on the turn. And we see that right now in, um, for example, Syria and Turkey. We're seeing a great resurgence of um, a season of spring amongst the Muslim-born peoples there who are coming to Christ. We're seeing a lot of that in Syria and Turkey right now. They're definitely embattled, <laughs> but they're growing. They're growing. You know, over 80% of all major Muslim movements of people turning to Christ, over 80% of those throughout all history have occurred in the past 25 years. It's true. I was, checking, I was re-checking statistics this morning before I told you that. It's true. Over 80% of major movements of Muslims turning to Christ throughout all of history have occurred in the past 25 years. There is spring occurring in the Muslim world, and we can see that in particular in Syria and Turkey. China, the church in China is well into spring. It's not, the, the Christ, Christian church is not well loved by the government over there. But the underground church has been exploding into the millions. Millions upon millions of underground church out there. They're properly experiencing a season of spring. They're embattled, but they're growing. The church can experience a season of summer, where the church is highly regarded by the public. Christianity is at home in the culture. And we see that in many African contexts. Today, they're experiencing summer as a Christian church. In the UK here, we're pretty much in an autumn coming into winter season. Things have changed. Culture is increasingly in different ways. It's quite insidious, but culture is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. At the very least, church has become more marginalized. There's mockery afoot sometimes. The church is just generally just dismissed, just get a shrug of the shoulders. Um, Fruitfulness is hard. Growth is hard. And so what we can see in or around the church in our country, it can dishearten us. Particularly, I've got to say, for those of us who are older, who remember the former temple, if you like, who remember the former years, decades early, earlier, there can be a danger in dwelling a little too much on how things used to be. It's, a, it's an easy temptation, I get it. The days of Christendom are over, which actually, it's for another story, but I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. They can make, leave us in a place of comfort, can't it? But laws have changed. Church going has, is very different to a number of decades ago. And looking at the surface, that can dishearten us. We can look and go, it's just a shadow of how it used to be. But you know, when you're heading from autumn into winter, you know what that means, don't you? Spring is coming. We need to recognize what God is doing. It doesn't mean all is lost. It doesn't mean it's a dead end. And do you know what? Spiritual transformation in societies at large across history have always been preceded by a great resurgence in prayer. And actually, underneath the surface, what are we seeing in this country? A resurgence 
in prayer. There's the Thy Kingdom Come initiative. You can see through the Anglican Church and so on, other churches joining in. These weeks of committed prayer for our nation every year. There's um, 24-7 prayer that Pete Gregg, it's an international movement that Pete Gregg's been involved in. He's now handed over to Mike Andrea at Glogen in Thanet. He's now the international director for 24-7 prayer. And you see a lot of that going on in our country. Underneath the surface is a resurgence of prayer. In our own family of churches, we've got the Enough corporate prayer nights three times a year where over 10,000 people, heading towards 15,000 people, on the same night are getting, gathering in hubs to pray through the same things at the same time. There's a resurgence in prayer in this nation. That will always precede spiritual transformation in society. We have to trust that actually... It may not feel like it right now, it may not look like it right now, but spring is coming. We have to trust that. And so God is saying to the people here, and therefore God is saying to us now, he's saying don't dwell on the past. Don't dwell on the past. His promise here is that while the temple certainly doesn't look, what they're building certainly doesn't look as glorious as it was in Solomon's day, he's doing something new. He's not even asking to build a better physical temple. They're missing the point entirely. He says, you are in a feast for celebrating what I've done, but you're looking dejectedly at what you think I'm doing right now. So you're missing the point entirely. Lift up your eyes. Celebrate. Press in. I'm doing so much more. The best is yet to come. Even Haggai's name here is a giveaway. Haggai's name means festive. It means to celebrate. Even the, the name of this book, the name of the author, the messenger himself, his name means festive. It means celebrate. It's a clue to God's heart here. In all God's challenging, in all his pointing out the people's blind spots and their wonky hearts, the point is that this is leading to something much more glorious than they could even imagine. It's enough to melt their brains. He says that he's got even bigger plans. He says, verse 7, I will shake all nations. See, it's not even just about you guys. It's about the world. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. If you flick to, you don't have to do it now, but if you flick to the end of Hebrews chapter 12, it refers back to this very verse and actually points out that what he's talking about God is talking about the shaking of anything that is not of God's kingdom. And he's talking about his kingdom that is unshakable. He's saying that what will remain, things will be shaken, but what will remain is whatever is rooted firmly in the soil of Jesus and his work upon the cross, which we're going to celebrate in a while through communion. Anything that is rooted in that is unshakable because his kingdom, his domain, where he rules, the king's reign, that is unshakable. Three and a half years ago, there was an earthquake in central Italy. Quite a devastating one. There was a particular town called Amatrice, uh, but the region itself was affected, not just the town. But this, this earthquake devastated this town, reduced to ruins. Just normal modern buildings, the whole town was just completely decimated. But right within it, the oldest building in the town, it was a 13th century clock tower. It remained standing. This 800-year-old tower, you can see photos, Google it, you can see photos of it. This tower, this 800-year-old tower remained standing while else, everything else around it that had been built up was reduced to ruins. What was ancient and original and rooted well 
remained standing when the shaking came. That's what this verse is promising. We are a part. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if his kingdom extends to your heart, is that where he reigns? You are part of something that is ultimately, cosmically unshakable. Unshakable. That's what God's doing beneath the surface. We are part of his unshakable kingdom. We need to lean on that. Now, I know we'd all love Beacon Church to be bursting at the seams. Of course we would. And while we are growing, it may still not look like what we've actually been dreaming of. But we also may look across town and we may see some hundreds of people. You start adding them up. You see some hundreds of people who genuinely love Jesus, who follow Jesus, who are committed to his church, his community, to transforming lives and so on, making disciples. Some hundreds, whatever that comes to. But then we look further and we see another 38,000, 39,000 people around us who truly don't know him. And as a result of that, we can become disheartened. That's a mountain. That's not what I was hoping for. What's going on? We can feel like that. Now the choice for us is whether we allow that to feed apathy. What's the point? It's too big. It's too much. Nothing's happened. Or we can allow it just to feed complacency. Well, if God wants to do something about it, you will. I'll be over in the corner waiting. (laughs) We can allow that to feed apathy or complacency. Or we can choose to look beneath the surface, not because we're in denial, pretending what isn't real, but because we then get to see what God sees. And his word promises something quite beautiful. Revelation chapter 7. We looked at Revelation last week, didn't we? In Revelation chapter 7, Jesus' best friend on this planet, John, he gets to see a vision of heaven. And this is what he sees. Revelation 7 verse 9. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. God was going to shake every nation, remember? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God is building something glorious and beautiful. Jesus said, I will build my church. Full stop. Not for a set few months, give it a few years, see how we get on. I will build my church. And we have to trust that he is building something unshakable and we are part of that. So as we step out in obedience, whatever that might mean, whatever he's calling us to, we will find him actually stirring us in the process. We'll discover that he's been doing that all along. And we need to know that he will catch us. He will give us the words to say. He will give us the boldness we desire. He will give us the energy we need. He will give us the resources we require. He will give us the creativity we yearn for. He will, every single time, he will catch us. He will provide as we continue to step out. In the leadership team here, we've been praying about the future, about praying what's next. And God is starting to stir things, starting to open some doors and what we feel we should be pushing through, pushing on, um, means of blessing the community and, and so on and so forth. Um, Something stirring. We we just got to pray into it and got to yeah do do more. Just pray about it a bit more. But things are beginning to brew. But then God is also starting to to stir us to consider about the future shape of Beacon Church and what we need to do now for the next ten years or beyond. We need to start asking questions. Is there anything anything we need to do now? We'll pay off in five ten years time. What do we need to be doing now that will 
you won't even notice, be beneath the surface, but it will pay off later. We're asking these questions, we're praying into it, and we just want to know how God wishes us to impact Herne Bay and beyond. We're asking that question now, again, as always. When the time's right, as things brew to the right shape and the right fruition, we will share with you, and it'll be time to press in. But in the meantime, we're still going to take a choice on our behalf to not stare at our belly buttons and to not just look at what we see with our physical eyes and think, it's not really all that, is it? There's not this and there's not that and so on. But he's asking us to look ahead. He's asking us to not look in, but to look out. He's asking us to not look at the surface, but to look beneath the surface. He's asking us to look through his eyes and not through ours. Will you, will you stand with me? Rachel, if you want to come and um, get ready to lead us through song, that'd be brilliant. Bob's going to lead us through communion in a moment. But I just want to read, reread a couple of the verses from this chapter 2.